Welcome to Managing Safety, brought to you by the Florida Aviation Network, an effort of the National Aviation Safety Foundation and a coalition of local, regional, and national aviation organizations and agencies. This talk show addresses strategies for thinking in today's complex aviation world. Now, here's Ben Coleman, President of Aerospace Management System Institute, Board Member of Professional Aerospace Maintenance Association and National Aviation Safety Foundation. He's the anchor host for Plane Time Stressing Aviation Maintenance. He has over 3,000 hours of flight time around the world and is today's host. Hello everyone, I'm Ben Coleman, your anchor host for the Florida Aviation Network, coming to you live and in the clear. Sun and Fun 49, and we're here at the Aerospace Center for Excellence, actually in the high school, uh, Central Florida Aerospace Academy. And we are, as usual, we are no stranger to pulling in some of the best talent, some of the most influential people in the world, primarily in the warbird industry. We have Mr. Larry Kelly with us here with Panchito. It's a B-25 that is out on the flight line and she's spectacular. Larry Kelly uh, is right there on camera. Morning, Three. Ben. Hey, Larry. We're so far away on the set, I would normally, I would shake your hand. But yeah, it seems odd sitting this far away from you. Yeah, the, it, we'll do the yeah, obligatory We'll do handshake. a virtual shake. Okay. We did, did so much virtual for the last three years. But that's okay. We spread out a little bit, and uh, we're, we're trying to, uh, in your fashion, uh, do things a little bit better, a little cleaner. Because you do it every year, cleaner and better. We try. Uh, Larry, uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, I know we have some talking points we want to get into here. And you had something special that you wanted to do at the end of your, uh, of your session here. We'll see here. if we have time. If we have time. Mm -hmm. But uh, tell us a little bit about the Dooley, do, uh, to the Doolittle Raider reunions and, uh, and, and, well, and Dick it, Cole's uh, burial. Some of, the, some of the greatest honors in my life is, was uh, meeting and becoming part of the Doolittle Raider family starting back in 1998, the reunion down in Sarasota. And, uh, you know, if you own a B-25, you're sort of automatically become part of that, you know, that family. But then being asked to uh, try to arrange the flying events for the reunions becomes very special because then you get involved in a lot of the background stuff. But then as, as, we, as the years progressed and, you know, Tom Casey, who's the Doodle Raiders manager, you know, you know he's, mm -hmm. lives over, he and I are doing a program here on Saturday mm -hmm. out at, uh, on the flight line. And uh, we begin to realize that people talk about the Doolittle Raiders and they don't really think about or talk about everything else that is involved and the other parts of human tragedy, human losses that was involved in that raid. You know, the raid that changed the course of the war in the Pacific, 80 men, 16 airplanes. But, you know, the 56 American airmen that came down in China, bailed out or ditched the airplanes, you know, behind enemy lines in China, were rescued and uh, uh, by simple Chinese peasants, farmers, and militia. And uh, over a period of days and sometimes weeks uh, were kept away from the Japanese, the marauding Japanese forces that were just infuriated that American bombers for the first time in two millennia the, American, the Japanese homeland had been attacked. So they began a rampage throughout China, and that story is so little known. 
And also, people think, yeah, well, the, the Raiders took off from the, from the Hornet, the USS Hornet, brand new American carrier's first mission. But they don't know that the USS Hornet never celebrated its first birthday. It was sank by the Japanese at the Battle of Santa Cruz because they knew the Hornet was the launching point for the Doolittle Raiders. The Japanese were still infuriated, so they swarmed the Hornet until they sank it. Mm. So to us, it became important that we needed to bring together to focus the history from the entire uh, story. So we set forth to try to find survivors in China who were involved in helping the raiders. Mm. We found two elderly ladies whose families uh, had assisted. Uh, one was Doolittle's crew and the other uh, Travis Hoover's crew. It's interesting, as Chinese professor that was helping us in the Chuchiao area try to locate these people, he found these ladies, people in town directed them to her. And when he went and interviewed her, he says, do you remember you know, these American airmen? And she, oh, yes. And she named them by name. And after 70 years, she remembered all five of them by name, and she was nine years old at the time. And then we had also, in the years leading up to the seventh reunion, we had located two survivors that were on board the Hornet from the time it was being outfitted in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. And, and because they were on the Hornet then being outfitted, they knew the ship so well that they were able to find their way through a stairwell that was basically electrical conduit in the ship mm. and to get out of it, because they were four fours below when it started sinking and was able to swim away from it. So they were on board from the time it was being outfitted until they swam away from it, it was being sinking while nearly 200 of their shipmates went down with the Hornet when it was sank. So we brought together at the Air Force Museum in Dayton, Ohio, all the elements of the raid, Hornet survivors, Chinese survivors, and the Raider survivors at the time, to tell that story and to, and to remind people, do you know that 250,000 Chinese died? Mm. 250,000 Chinese were massacred by Japanese troops simply because they were helping 56 young Americans. Mm. So today when people start talking about China and China starts talking about America, maybe sometimes we need to look back at our history and remember who our friends were. Yeah, yeah. The Chinese people are just wonderful people. And you find that many times in you know, governments. The people are wonderful. We just, sometimes, our, sometimes our leadership may forget who our friends are. Okay. Well, I didn't know you were a statesman as well, Larry, but I, I'm well, not surprised. I'm not, but you, you know, are. we mentioned a little bit uh, uh, Dick Cole's bureau. You know, that was very emotional for a lot of us because that was the passing of the last Doolittle Raider. You know, and as Dick said, you know, the passing into history. You know, there was no longer anybody firsthand out there to talk about the raid anymore. You know, he was gone. So as, uh, of course, COVID was, was delaying the burials and, and everything was going crazy in Washington. So the family decided to go ahead and bury Dick at Fort Sam Houston, at the military cemetery at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, uh, instead of at Arlington, which was the original plan. So the Air Force had contacted me and asked to, help, uh, to coordinate with, with the Air Force a flyover for Dick Cole's burial. So, uh, uh, it was a little too far for me to take Panchito to be involved with, so with B-25s being based out there. And the Commemorative Air Force has always stepped forward whenever we asked to help with dual Raiders. Massive effort, anything we wanted, whatever we wanted, they always bring their airplanes and their crews. Mm -hmm. So we put together with uh, uh, Rod Lewis, who was a close friend of Dick, 
being in the pull position for the missing man because he was the closest personally with Dick, so I wanted him and the missing man. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we had four B-25s. Uh, we originally had four C-47s, you know, because Dick was the first air commando, and he always considered that his greatest contribution to World War II was, and his third distinguished flying cross was with the first air commandos mm -hmm. flying C-47s. So we had four B-25s, four C-47s. We lost two to due to mechanical problems, so we wound up with only two. But then we had a flight of four F-15s from the uh, Louisiana Air National Guard, the Bio Militia. Mm. And uh, so we staged them all and worked out the timing. And, of course, I'm sweating bullets. You know, we, we were having trouble with communication. I had this big backpack VHF radio I was having to wear to be able to communicate with them because they were 25 miles out in holding positions. And uh, General Brown was there, you know, the new uh, chief staff of the Air Force. Mm -hmm. And it just couldn't have worked out better. The timing, I was so proud of the guys. They, they nailed the timing right to it. So just as General Brown accepts the folded flag from Dick's coffin, mm -hmm. he kneels to present the flag to Cindy just as the four B-25s pass over and they do the missing man pull. Wow. Couldn't have been better. And then the C-47s right behind them. And then a few seconds later, the flight of four F-15s, Eagles, and, uh, I, and I'd asked them, instead of doing a traditional missing man, let's take Dick to the heavens. So they pulled vertical, went to full blower, and his missing man pull was a vertical pull. Out of sight. And so that was the, uh, yeah, I had the honor for 25 years of planning the flying events, but that was the last one. Well, Larry, uh, there's, there's a lot that you have shared with the industry and the world, and you're still sharing it. Uh, tell us about some of your training. What do you do for the training for the B-25? Well, we have, uh, to my knowledge, the only full, uh, uh, fully enclosed turnkey B-25 flight training program in the world, uh, where pilots, if you have a multi-engine rating, at least a private pilot rating and a multi-engine rating and a current medical, could be third class, it can't be the basic med, but you can have at least a third class medical, multi-engine rating and a private pilot, then we can accept you into pilot training at our home base in Georgetown, Delaware, and uh, from just an hour of, of orientation training, you know, dual instruction, all the way through a second command rating, which is a weekend uh, trip, or for a full type rating, which is eight days of, of flight training and then a check ride. We have a check airman, uh, one of only six, you know, the, no, there's not even six left now. I think we're down to like four or five mm -hmm. uh, check airmen for the B-25 on staff. So we do it all self-contained at our home base in Georgetown, Delaware. Uh, information is available to anybody, just very simple, DelawareAviationMuseum.org. And flight training, click on flight training, or come out and see us out at the airplane. We have uh, uh, our director of flight training, Sabrina Kipp, is right there at, uh, at the airplane. We'd be glad to talk to anybody. Uh, and it's really become international. And we have a class coming up at the end of the month. Uh, we have a student come from Austria. Uh, one coming from Dublin, Ireland, mm. and uh, and then one from one it's fairly local, and one coming from Texas, and uh, uh, so we it it really has become an international training program, yeah. and it's and it's recognized as a quality program by the FAA. We've actually been complimented on on the quality of the training and the depth of the training that we do. What's your average size of class, Larry? I'm just four. Kind of four. Okay. If it's an SIC class, it's four. Okay. Uh, you, we just can't give the, the personal attention needed for anything larger than that. And it's uh, all-day training on Friday. It's ground school. 
uh, and hands-on in the hangar because we, we go beyond just simply showing you the, the power charts and the takeoff landing mm -hmm. solid to stop and all that stuff. That puts you to sleep. But I also have what I call a show-and-tell table. I have all kinds of parts spread out. And we go through what I've learned in 25 years of experience is common failure modes and how to recognize do you have a nuisance or do you have a real failure? That low mm -hmm. pressure indication, is that an indication problem or do you have really low oil pressure? Mm -hmm. So we go through all of these old systems that uh, many people don't even understand how they work to make mm -hmm. sure people understand uh, uh, a good pilot is one that understands when something is not going right, is it really a problem or is it an emergency? So we teach a lot of that as well. So when the pressure's going down and the temperature's going up, it's got your attention. Well, you always look for a secondary indication. Okay. <laughs> Larry, tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing for the Warbird being icons as far as trying to keep all well, this alive and relevant. Yeah, I, I did a program at a Warbird Operators Conference uh, a couple months ago, and that went over well because what I wanted to do is is to illustrate how, you know, if, if you want to just get in a hot rod airplane and be macho, go buy an extra 300 or, or, or something, or a Pitts. But if you're going to get into Warbirds, uh, Warbirds are icons of our military history and treat it that way. And use these Warbirds to keep alive the memories of all the veterans that climbed in uh, the airplanes and then their commanding officers had to write letters home to the girlfriends, wives, mothers uh, the next day. So you know, remember that every time you climb an airplane and use that, you fly these airplanes respectfully uh, and use those to help keep the memory alive. You know, we, uh, I, I was just mentioned the 70th anniversary. You know, what made that really such an internationally recognized event was the fact we had 20 B-25s there. Mm. And so we used the airplanes and then used that to bring focus to the human story with the Chinese and the Hornet survivors and everything. So you know, use the airplanes to tell that story find out what the history is of your aircraft and your type, and then use it to keep those stories alive. Now, we're doing a program right here on Friday with an O2, a Cessna mm. Skymaster. Do it well. <laughs> but the story yeah. is about Mark Renault's father. Mm. The U.S. government has made 24 trips into the jungle to try to find and locate his father's airplane. Mm. It was shot down in Vietnam. They just located it. Wow. So for 50 years, that family's had no closure. They just located the wreckage and human remains. Wow, 50 years. His family is now going to have closure. 24 times our government has gone out still trying to locate the wreckage. That one aircraft and those two airmen that went down. That's remarkable. Yeah. That and is remarkable. The remarkable thing is Mark's dad trained at Vance Air Force Base while Panchita was based there as a multi-engine trainer. It all he come, probably flew my airplane. It all comes full circle, doesn't yeah. it? Larry, uh, I've been told that you're the custodian of something that's very, it's almost a national treasure. Well, yes, I, I, uh, I'll try to condense the story a little bit. Back a number of years ago, uh, when Dick Cole was still getting around really well, we would meet over at Sarasota right around the sun and fun time, and we'd do an event called Take a Ride on a B-25 with a Doolittle Raider. How many people can say they got in a B-25 and flew it with a Doolittle Raider? So Dick would get on board, and we would sell five tickets to five people, and I would, I would put out the airplane and all the expenses of the airplane myself, and then all the ticket uh, sales went to the James H. Doolittle Scholarship Fund, which mm -hmm. very much like the Aerospace Center for Excellence uh, would, uh, oh yeah, there's a photo of, of Dick and I flying down to Punta Gorda 
Uh, he flew the air show that weekend at 96 years old. Wow, that's great. But uh, uh, so the James A. Stoodle Scholarship Fund is one of the scholarships the students here are able to actually apply for. So uh, uh, we, we had a half-page ad in a newspaper the newspaper gave us for free, and Don Penny Snyder saw the ad, or his wife saw the ad, and said, you were to go out there and meet this guy. So Don came out. Now, Don Snyder uh, came out of Hollywood. He was in the Ford administration, and he was a comedian, writer, actor, et cetera, and was working with Jerry Ford. And at a reception at the White House, General Doolittle was there, and uh, Gerald Ford asked him, can you help General Doolittle? He's got to write this speech, and he's having, he, he mentioned he's having some trouble writing it. So Don was introduced to General Doolittle that night, and they became very, very close friends. And it turns out they only live three blocks from each other in California. So mm. in 1992, after Doolittle had moved in uh, to a uh, to, uh, home with his son, John, out at Pebble Beach, uh, Susan and Don were out there, and General Doolittle said, uh, uh, Don, you collect fine watches, don't you? Yes, sir. He said, well, here, take this one. He opened his desk drawer and handed his watch over to Don. And Don is looking at it, and he says, wow, this is a Longines... Lindbergh, our angle watch, and uh, he recognized the watch because it's an extremely fine timepiece. Mm. And he asked the general, he said, did you wear this on the raid? He said, yeah. And he said, wore it all during the war. And uh, uh, he had given it to his son Jim, and then after his son Jim's death, the watch had came back to him, but he never wore it again. So he gave it to Don and said, Don, you know, the Air and Space Museum wants this, and I'm just not going to give it to them because they, they'll put it in a drawer. Uh-oh. They'll put it in a drawer, and nobody will ever see it again. So a uh, little technical issue there. Yeah, let me just sort of try to stand this thing back up here. There you go. So they'll, they'll just put it in a drawer, and nobody will ever see it again. He gave it to Don and said, use this to keep the story of my boys alive, and then you find the next custodian for this. Hmm. And then uh, Don came out that day, and uh, he just walked up to Dick and just laid his wrist down like this on, on the table in front of Dick. And Dick looked over and he said, boy, that's a, I haven't seen that in a long time. He recognized you right away. And, uh, uh, of course, then that's when I got the chance to put it on. And then Don flew with us to a number of events. He flew with us when we delivered the Congressional Gold Medal to the mm -hmm. Dual Raiders at wright Pat. And when we flew uh, uh, for the 75th anniversary, for the final toast, all the different events that I had organized out at the Air Force Museum and, and others. So at that time, he had found the next custodian, is what he told me. So this past November, uh, I was visiting with Don over in Palmetto, and uh, he said, the time has come. And he passed that, that icon over to me. Wow. So, Right now, I am now the custodian because you don't own something like Jimmy Doolittle's wristwatch. But, wow. You know, he passed that over to me, and I was able to... Uh, camera 3. Uh, yeah. So now, you know, I'm the temporary custodian. Uh, my job is to find the next custodian and then use this as an icon to tell, remember because this wristwatch was on Jimmy Doolittle's wrist when he bailed out over China. And uh, Hold that up one more time, maybe. Yeah. Uh, he's going to focus in on that so we can see. Uh, we can, there we go. Yeah. That's that's and on great. the back. You know it says uh, Colonel Charles 
says Colonel Charles Lindbergh, Lind Longines Hour Angle Watch. Wow. You use the watch, you can calculate your longitude. And that's a one of, I, I would imagine. There were very few made. Uh, they're very valuable. Uh, there were very few made in the 30s, and then Longines reintroduced the watch in the 60s. Hold it like uh, that, Larry. For the 60th anniversary. And then uh, they just came out with a 90th anniversary edition, but it was sold out immediately. Wow. But, the, and, and, but uh, he was wearing that when he went in. He watch. told Don Snyder that this was the watch that he wore on the raid April 18th. Wow. Now, the band that was on it then has long since deteriorated sure. and been replaced. Doolittle had a little metallic band on it when he gave it to Don Snyder, and then Don had put a leather band on it, but it was not the original band. And then after the watch came to me in November, I went out on the Internet and found a dealer that still sold vintage uh, Longines wristbands along with many other vintage watch parts and mm -hmm. was able to find and replace the band with an original vintage Longines band. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, it's, uh, it, it kind of gives you goosebumps when you, you've got a piece of history well, that's just but, there in your hands. It? it is, but when I look at this, what I see is, is a story of heroism, uh, commitment, uh, men who, you know, climbed in their airplanes to take off. And I tell you, if you want to upset a Doolittle Raider, you say a suicide mission. It was not a suicide mission. The, the original plan was to fly the airplanes, bomb Japan, land in China, refuel, fly on to Chongqing. Mm -hmm. The airplanes would be given to the American Volunteer Group to form a nucleus of a bomber command for the AVG. Because, you know, this is prior to the AVG being inducted into the, becoming the 23rd Fighter yeah. Group. So they were still basically an arm. They, they were. They were the Chinese Air Force. So the airplanes were going to be given to the Chinese. That was the original plan. Mm. But since they were spotted and had to take off earlier, you know, they, they took off knowing they probably did not have enough fuel to make the landing sites in Chuchao. But they all did. They all made that area, because, but they, they got there in the night in a storm. They couldn't find the airfield because the NDB never made it to the airfield. Mm. So they couldn't home in on anything. They couldn't visually see it because of the storms they were in. So as they flew around the area trying to find the three different airfields they were supposed to land in, they wound up having to make decisions to either to ditch the airplanes like Ted Lawson mm -hmm. and a couple of others or like Doolittle climbing 9,000 feet and bail out. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, Larry, it's, it, it, I honestly say that it's always a pleasure to, to have you here on the set, yeah. and I look forward to many, many more. But uh, I want to learn more about the, the flight training for the B-25 and and anyone, if you ever have an interest in, uh, we're not going to have too many more of these opportunities in these well, warbirds. Well, there, there's going to be a time when it's going to be more and more difficult to keep the airplanes flying. I was just yeah. telling you earlier, you know, <clears throat> a, a tire for a B-25 right now is $7,800 just for one tire. Mm. And $800 for the tube to go in it. Wow. And there's 56 brake rotors in a B-25 at $135 a piece. You know, so the cost of keeping these airplanes going is becoming exponential. It's becoming very, very expensive. Uh, and there's only one way to do it is to do it right. So yeah. you, you know, and uh, and the warbird community as a whole, you know, I have seen mature much more in that direction of doing it right. Mm -hmm. uh, the new professional warbird operators uh, organization is just being wholeheartedly welcomed by the warbird community as uh, is needed, and it's, it's all going to be about professionalism. It's, it's like a physician getting a, a board certification. 
Warbird operators now become part of this, mm -hmm. and they get a lot of this additional training that they're going to need for safety. They'll get guidance. They will get, uh, uh, you know, uh, leadership, uh, professionalism, mm -hmm. uh, mentoring. Uh, uh, you know, new people coming into Warbirds can join the organization and get that mentorship and that training and and a whole cultural shift mm -hmm. uh, to where you know, many of us feel that we should be in protecting these icons of our military history. You know, as Walt Ulrich said, you know, we're we're temporary custodians, so we got to treat them right, fly them right, and. Agreed keep the stories going for the next generation. So well, it, there's many of us that feel that way. It's time, Larry. Mm -hmm. It's time. And uh, thank you again for joining us, and I want to see you out on the ramp. Well, come on out. And anybody else would like to come out and talk about the flight training, we'd love to talk to them. We'll be here all week long, and you can't miss us when you come on the Warbird ramp. We're the big shiny bird sitting right there. <laughs> <laughs> with, with no scratches on it. Uh, well, let's hope not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, I'm, uh, we're going to sign this one off. I'm Ben Coleman, your anchor host. Here at the Florida Aviation Network, 49th Annual Sun and Fun uh, International Expo. And I will see you on the flight line. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed today's Managing Safety, brought to you by the Florida Aviation Network, an effort of the National Aviation Safety Foundation and a coalition of local, regional, and national aviation organizations and agencies. Please visit our studio website to hear past programs.